Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth. An exploratory conversation about facing the unknown. An opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. What a great conversation we had last week. Uh, Janet Alterman. Um, yeah, definitely. She's an impressive woman, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to get uh, the perspective of, one, a woman, um, and two, somebody who's born and raised in Charleston, seen, you know, from the early 1950s all the way through to today. Um, you know, uh, gosh, your parents were significant benefactors of the arts. Uh, you had mentioned they were... Well, Emmett Robinson Theater on the College of Charleston campus is named after her father. And if you walk into the Dock Street Theater, both of her parents are memorialized in beautiful paintings, one on the left, one on the right. So right. they've been in, in the arts and in the theater in this town for a long time. Right. I also found it interesting as parents, you're a parent, I'm a parent, um, how big an influence her, her mother and her father were on her life, even back to, I mean, a very, yeah. very early age and the foundation. Um, it would be really nice to know that when, when I was much older, my son was still talking about that influence, right. you know? It, yeah, it definitely is a great feeling to, to think forward that, that far in advance, especially today on Baze's 11th birthday. Right. Yeah, September Cheers 2nd. you, Baze. Yeah. You know, another thing I thought was fascinating, I have four sisters, a very strong mother, um, Janet, uh, you know, I sort of think of as the first lady of Charleston, um, but she's traveled the world as an advocate for, for women's rights. And um, her talking about sort of the suffrage that women endure in Afghanistan and then mm -hmm. paralleling that to the suffrage that women endure right here in our backyard in our own state, domestic violence and just one of the, the litany of issues uh, was... was uh, caught me off guard, really. It's a bit eye-opening, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. amongst all the racial tension that's happening in this town at this moment uh, uh, with regards to the shooting recently. And, you know, uh, sexism isn't something that's been at the forefront of the conversation for a long time, but she's been the one at the Center for Women leading the charge. Right. And, boy, it seems like she's, you know, well-suited for that role. She's just been a lifetime fighting for the rights of women. Right. You know, um, an right. incredible, admirable thing. And she's still doing it today. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, um, I think, having three male guests on the show and then to, to lead off with our first female guest and have it be Janet Alterman was a good choice. Yeah. Let's go to that conversation. Excellent. Welcome to Call to Adventure. This is John Duckworth with my great friend Alex Opolis, and today we're talking with Janet Robinson Alterman. Janet grew up in Charleston, attended Mary Baldwin College in Virginia before setting off to compile a diverse and impressive professional resume. She was a TV news reporter, spent time with the Peace Corps in Afghanistan and Swaziland, worked with the South Carolina Lieutenant Governor the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration before taking the helm of the Center for Women which flourished under her leadership for 12 years before leaving once again to explore new territory as a consultant and speaker. Janet, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You know, one of the questions we love to ask our guests is, uh, you know, thinking about Charleston as a person. Um, 
And being from Charleston, born and raised here, uh, and having spent a lot of time here, interested in your thoughts. Um, and you also describe Charleston as a, as a lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps you could, everybody that we've talked to uh, describes Charleston as a lady, and perhaps you could um, talk to that issue, maybe. Well, if you look at the city seal, mm-hmm. there is a woman on it. Um, and I think it's, it's a logical gender mm-hmm. because of the way the city has aged and changed. I think I put in my comment earlier, it's an older, a woman of a certain age right, in pearls certain age. <laughs> uh, driving a, you know, a vintage Mercedes kind of thing. And, and really, that is how I see the city. Having grown up here, growing up on Lower Queen Street, you know, nobody locked their doors. You know, we walked to and from school. The Automatic was the first supermarket to, uh, to open in Charleston. It was three or four blocks away. My mother didn't learn how to drive until she was 40 because she could literally walk everywhere. And that was, mm-hmm. that was the, the neighborhood, really. And growing up in a theater environment, I was exposed to different types of people from a very early age. I mean, my father would drag all sorts of people in and teach them how to act and put them on stage. I mean, it was quite a diverse population of actors and volunteers. How do you think the city's aging at this particular juncture? A lot of people talk about it being uh, a city in transition. Um, It is a city in transition because so many things have caught up with us, Mm -hmm. not the least of which being traffic and transportation issues, but development and some of those other things. And, you know, it... Joe Riley stepping down after 40 years. So, I mean, that's transition in and of itself. And as a citizen, I want to see my city retain its character and its ambience. But at the same time, I want it livable. You know, I want kids to have the city that I did. Speaking of, of childhood, one of the things that you brought up when we asked about calls to adventure was, was running away from sleepover camp. And, and that just made me laugh reading it. And I'm, and I'm hoping it's a funny story. Well, it, it's a story that really defines, I think, who I am. Okay. Um, I've never been big on group activities, and somehow I got conned into going to camp, sleepover camp for two two weeks. And I was there with a friend of mine. You know, you have to have somebody to go with you and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the popsicle boxes and the potholders and the swimming and everything done as a group, you know, I sort of stuck it out for that two weeks and informed my parents because that was, I think I was 10, I didn't ever need to go back to sleepover camp. So the next summer, my mother conned me into it again and said, look, I'll be up in the North, in North Carolina, right near the camp, which shall remain nameless. <laughs> and if you decide after the first week you want to come home, you can come home. And I'll call the camp director on the Saturday night because I'll be leaving on Sunday and you just tell her what you want to do. And if you want to come home, you can come home. So I said, great. That sounded like a very fair deal. So I accepted it. So I did my week. And on that Saturday, which was the end of the first week, I went to the camp director and I said, when my mother calls, please tell her I would like to leave tomorrow. And of course, she tried to talk me out of it. I said, no, I want to leave. And then they had a talent contest that night. And I had recently been in a play that my mother had written. So my talent was to sing a song from that particular play. So I won the talent contest, okay, which was great. But I still wanted to go home. And I went back by the camp director's office and I said, did my mother call? And she said, yes. And I told her you had won the talent contest. So I was sure you'd want to stay this next week. (laughs) And I said, but we had a deal. You know, I told you, I was polite. I told you I wanted to leave, and that was the deal I made with my mother. And she said, oh, it'll be fine. I was not happy. So I got back to my cabin, and I waited till everyone went to sleep. 
and I started walking out of the camp. And it was several miles. How old were you? 11. 10 or 11. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I walked all night, and any time I'd hear a car, I'd seen enough bad movies, I would dive into the, you know, oh, the, the, the shallow <laughs> ditch by the side of the road. And I ended up getting to the closest little town and went to a gas station and convinced them to let me use the phone. And I called my mother, who was staying at the friend's house. And, of course, she was hysterical because they'd know... They realized I was gone like an hour after I left. So, oh, they you know, there'd been okay. sheriff's pot. Oh, they were all over the woods looking uh -huh. for, you know, the remains in the shallow ditch, as it were. And um, I just said, you know, this was the deal we cut. You said I could come home, and, and they lied to you. And it was real hard for my parents to really be disciplinary about it. Right. At the same time, another example. Because you were right. I was right. I was yeah. right. And I did, you know, it was fairness. It was about justice and fairness. And several years earlier, I had sort of filched a quarter from mom's wallet and taken the bus up to Hampton Park. I was about six on a Saturday morning. And the quarter bought me one way, the re return trip, and then the nickel for the Cracker Jack. So I was gone, I don't know, a couple hours. And I came back and I'm walking down Queen Street and there are kids in the neighborhood going, boy, are you in trouble? Uh -oh. And supposedly I got home and mom of course they were all looking for me you know i just disappeared off the face of the earth and she said young lady you're you're grounded for two weeks and supposedly i said make it three and don't tell dad <laughs> oh smart right <laughs> it's a big deal at six hopping on a a, a a carriage and heading to hampton park wow the bus the bus yeah mm -hmm. well I, I you know as you look at what janet's done in her life adventure seems to uh follow you uh or you seem to follow adventure yeah uh one of the books you're reading is claire booth loose um wow what a fascinating book i, I just uh, uh chronicles loose's progress from her arrival on capitol hill through her career as a diplomat prolific journalist and magnetic public speaker as well as playwright screenwriter pioneer scuba diver early experimenter in psychedelic drugs, and grand dame of the GOP in the Reagan era. Fascinating young lady. Well, she started from very humble beginnings, and she married Henry Luce, right. who founded mm -hmm. Time magazine. And she purchased Mepkin Abbey. They used to spend really? a lot of time oh. at Mepkin Abbey and entertain people like Bernard Baruch there and all these celebrities. And about, I'd say, into her 40s, she converted to Catholicism. And as a result, she left Mepkin Abbey to the monks. And she had a daughter who unfortunately was killed in a tragic automobile accident. She's buried out there. But Claire spoke her mind and Claire took advantage of opportunities that came along. She was not risk averse. Right. But she always had, I think, a good bit of sort of that imposter syndrome. You know, when's somebody gonna find me out? Oh yeah, kind of thing. Uh, that's the feeling I get from reading about her. And it's a very—it's volume two. It's like four hundred pages. Is it pretty hefty tone? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. then I, I usually read two or three books at once. So okay. you know, I go back and forth depending on my mood. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the other book on your nightstand, the Little Paris Bookshop. That looks wonderful it's too. It's more—it's sort of a fantastical kind yeah. of kind of. If, if you've read All the Light You Cannot See, it's sort of similar to that. Very lyrical prose, mm -hmm. and it's a nice counterbalance to. Mm -hmm to the nonfiction. Have you spent time in, in Provence? No. No. Okay. No, I wish. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. I was just there not too long ago. I have a good friend who lives there and, and I went through the, the Gorge du Verdon, which is Ooh. France's version of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Which somehow they didn't discover until the late eighteen hundreds, which is hard to believe in a country that small. 
Yeah, you would think. You could not discover a giant chasm. But it was beautiful. <laughs> Big hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're going to uh, lead out uh, with Blackbird, a song that you spoke about with your mother, that she, she obviously was a big influence on you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Blackbird, the song, and, and that story. Well, for whatever reason, Mom taught Bye Bye Blackbird to my sister and myself early on. And it was a song that she'd learned with her sisters when they were children. So whenever we'd get together with my mother and any of her sisters, we'd all sing Blackbird, usually in the country club bar or something like that. And so mom and I went to uh, Ireland together in 1992 because she was very proud of her uh, Irish heritage. She was a Colbert. And it was interesting because every night we went out to a different pub to listen to Irish Just music. You and your mom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Nice. And I would get her her whiskey and she would s- sit near the peat fire and Every night she would get the band to play Bye Bye Blackbird. Every night, just, really? Every night. It was great. <laughs> it's a very interesting and a wonderful song, and I think it's Depression Era. Yeah. Pack up all my cares and woes. Here I go, singing low. All right, well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. 
Okay, welcome back to Call to Adventure. This is John Duckworth and Alexopoulos here with Janet Alterman in the studio, and that was Bye Bye Blackbird, performed by Kanika Moore out of Columbia, South Carolina, with some local guys, Jonathan Peace, Trey Cooper, and Brett Bellinger, playing backup for wonderful rendition. We want to get right to talking about your, uh, what appears to be, I was going to say your first big adventure, but you've already talked about a few when you were six years old and 10 years old. So a series of epic adventures, but this one led you out of the country to Afghanistan and joining the Peace Corps. And, and what precipitated that, that, well, because that bef- call? Before that, you were uh, on a television and a radio yeah, I was a television news reporter. Yeah, right. And um, actually, Bill Sharp and Warren Pepper and I all started at Channel 5 the summer of 1973 with the oh, same yeah. qualifications, basically. We all had liberal arts degrees. Okay. And I did the news reporting for about two and a half years and realized that's not where I wanted to plant myself Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was invaluable experience learning the effect of the media Mm. and I look at it on the inside yeah and looking at it today I mean these poor anchors have to be on their toes all day long you know you watch CNN and breaking news they've got to be on it absolutely we still had a teletype machine we didn't even have prompters you know I often find uh, we mentioned this with our conversation with Hamilton Davis when you make a big transition like that oftentimes there's friction or conflict around it. Was there any for you during that period? Or It was pretty straightforward. Um, this is, I sound like a precocious child. When I was 12, <laughs> um, I mm-hmm. informed my parents a- after reading a biography of Dr. Tom Dooley. At 12? At 12, who was a medical missionary. Mm. Probably worked for the CIA, but he was in Laos doing great work. And I announced to my parents one night at dinner that that's what I wanted to be. And Dad said, well, all right, let's figure this out. So you're 12. You're in the seventh grade. You need to get those grades up all the way through high school. And you need to go to a college with a good pre-med program. Then you'll do four years of medical school. And since you want to be overseas, you'll have to specialize in infectious diseases. So another three or four years to figure by the time you're 30 you'll have your medical education and then you can go to seminary for four years and then you're probably going to want to work with a church for at least a couple years before you leave the country so figure by the time you're 40 you'll be ready to go and then he said why don't you join the peace corps be a lot cheaper and faster there you go and literally 12 years later i called him and i said dan i'm i've been accepted in the peace corps wow and it was something i'd always wanted to do that was based in I really wanted to travel. I really wanted to see other cultures. It was just something I'd been infatuated with since I was little. Um, and my original assignment was in Samoa. Where's Samoa? Uh, South Pacific. Mm-hmm. So think mangoes, papayas, white sand beaches, sarongs, sunblock. And several weeks before I was due to leave, there was a pesky little coup d'etat in uh-huh. Samoa. So Peace Corps had to pull out all of their volunteers and it meant that I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I got a call from Peace Corps saying, we're really sorry, we'll try to send you somewhere in six months. And it was like, I can't just hang for six months. You know, I need to go somewhere. Well, we're really sorry. So I decided for the first time in my life to use influence, hmm. to use my influence. Okay. So I called a friend of mine who worked with Senator Hollings and I said, can you help me out? I need an assignment right away. And two days later, Peace Corps called and said, uh, how about Afghanistan? And I said, this was 1976. And I said, there's someone at the door. I'll be right back. <laughs> and I grabbed the atlas. 
really? I knew vaguely where it was. This was 1976. Yeah. Nobody had ever heard of Afghanistan. So I look at it. It's landlocked. It's mountainous. It's Muslim. It's not Samoa. There's no sunny, sandy beaches. But I thought, what the hey? How bad can it be? It's an assignment. I'm it's ready. A, yeah, I'm ready. And of course, it's one of the most exotic places on the earth. If you look, if you think about long it, long ancient I mean, history. Long yeah. ancient history. Um, you know, it was it was such a uh, a 180 degree change for me. I moved from Charleston to California. Was there for a couple of years. Then I went uh, overseas to Afghanistan, and nobody spoke English, even in Kabul. And I got there in January. It was cold. It was so cold. It was mm. unbelievably cold because Kabul sits at 6,000 feet, mm. surrounded by mountains, encircled by the tail of the Hindu Kush mountains. And your form of heat were these giant charcoal briquettes that you would put into a stove and you'd put the kindling in it and you'd hope it would catch and of course it would go out before the morning came. So you're and cold if, and shivering when oh you wake yeah, up. And, oh yeah. yeah, and I was lucky enough to have a uh, to have a little house that had a, a western toilet and a shower but I had to build the, the fire in the shower container to be able to get hot water. I mean, oh, it wow. was, but compared to the way most Afghans lived, it was, it was, it was luxury. luxurious. Right. Hmm. But to go to a country and realize very early on that women were so devalued and treated so badly. And the first time I went out to a market, because, you know, we were doing uh, competency-based language training. So instead of learning, where is the pen of my aunt, you learn, where can I buy toilet paper? And the first time I went into the into the local market, I was surrounded by these women wearing the shadors. They're not burqas that they wear in Afghanistan. Mm. They're shadors because they're different. They have a little sort of lace inset, and that's what you see through. Oh, you, wow. don't see you don't see anything. anything. You don't okay. see anything. And when you wear it, you are your peripheral vision is very narrow. I and never wore it, and I wasn't expected to because weren't. I was a foreigner. I was a guest. But there were probably some pretty strict uh, suggestions as to what you should wear. Oh, I was very conservative. Yeah. I always wore some kind of a head covering, a kerchief or whatever, loose baggy clothes because it was considered improper to al allow the outline of your body to be mm. seen. So I was assigned to the Ministry of Public Health, and my job was to create health education materials for women who couldn't read or write. So what do you do in that situation? You use pictures. Mm. So I had this bright idea and there were a couple of young artists in the bazaar who would do quick sketches and I hired one of them and I said okay I want you to show a generic man and a generic woman without the veil and kids little boy little girl and some of the basic stuff a house a pit latrine different kinds of foods a stream a mountain things like that so he could create a generic set of symbols so I wanted to test them first. So we go out, and I'm up in the northern part of the country around Mazari Sharif, which is a very rich area of the country. And we'd go into these villages, and I would show the women, you know, these symbols, and I'd say, Does that look like you? And this was really interesting. In the northern part of the country, they said, Oh, no, that's a poor woman. Look at her shoes. Oh, wow. And the, the artist in Kabul had depicted the woman wearing sort of a plastic shoe that was very common in Kabul in the central part of the country. And I said, hmm, interesting. So I got to change the shoe here. I go down to the southern part of the country, down in the Kandahar region. I ask the same question and I get, oh, she's a very rich woman. Look at her shoes. 
And it taught me that valuable lesson about the tiny little things that can derail a message. Right. Yeah, particularly when when they're covered from head mm-hmm. to toe in, in pretty nondescript mm-hmm. clothing, but the shoes are the way. I remember going to Catholic school as a child, and, and that was the one thing that we could wear that we didn't have to, wasn't part of the uniform. So you could express yourself through your shoes. I know that that completely. You know, everybody wore different shoes, but they had the same shirt and the same pants. But the women in Afghanistan, you know, they had very rarely access to decent health care, certainly no access to contraceptives. Um, high infant mortality, high maternal mortality. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. I mean, and before I left, a, a great friend of my, my parents, John Henry Dick, who uh, was an ornithologist and a great philanthropist, had done a lot of world traveling, and he said, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Never tell the poor they're poor. That's your value judgment. Mm. So even though these women were living in existence that I found horrific, that was all they knew. And for them, that was good Mm -hmm. because they didn't know about alternatives. And I think one of the reasons that, that, that things have blown up in that area of the world is the media. Access to information. Access to information. And all these young men, you know, who can't mm. get jobs. I mean, you look at it, the population in most of these Arab countries, huge population of, of men and women under 30. Mm-hmm. And they can't get jobs. And then they find out what life is like in other places. And, I mean, I can understand that that unrest and that that, right. that anger. It instills a feeling of, of, of unease and unhappiness in right. your position because suddenly mm-hmm. you know relative to elsewhere. Yeah. You're not doing so well. Yeah. Huh. I, I, you know, I've I've had the um, great fortune of having a really strong mother and and having four wonderful and very strong independent sisters. Um, it, it would be hard to, I think, for women here to relate to uh, how poorly women are treated in a place like that. I mean, it, is there strength in the women that you met? And I mean, can you? Oh yeah, dis- yeah. I would oh imagine. yeah, absolutely. But I have to sort of call you on this yeah. because. A lot of women in South Carolina don't have no. I, don't I, have that's it a well, generalization. You know? yeah, but I yeah. mean, it's it's the United States and how women are treated in some other places in the world is vastly different. But it's why I'm a woman's rights advocate yeah. because I've seen the worst of it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, I worked for Peace Corps in D.C. for many years um, on senior staff, and I went all over the world. And what I saw was a commonality in terms of the way women are treated. Right. And to come back to South Carolina and find us with the number one or two rating for domestic violence, you know, infant mortality, that series in the Post and Courier. There are eight counties in the state that don't have an OBGYN. You know, women hmm. aren't able to access prenatal care. Look at the lack of women uh, represented in the legislature. You know, it, it all sort of builds upon itself, and then you get the wage gap, and it's really a perfect storm. Um, I'm currently chair of the Charleston County Housing Authority, and it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. And the majority of, of folks that we help with housing are women, single, single women-headed households. Right. Mm. And if you're working a minimum jo- uh, wage job, your car breaks down, you have a medical expense. I mean, you can never really, it's almost impossible to get ahead. Right. Systemic. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like the, the, the seed of this particular passion really began in, in Afghanistan. It very much though. began in Afghanistan. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. And you how know, long were you there? 
I was there just under two years because the Soviets backed uh, a coup d'etat mm-hmm. May 1st of 1978. I and remember watching that on the news. I think I was six years old when the tanks moved into Afghanistan. Well, MiGs overhead. This yeah. was, they were rolling down the streets of Kabul. The MiGs were flying overhead. And because I had a little house with a compound, with a wall, a lot of my other Peace Corps friends came to my house because they were in apartments and there was sort of that immediate feeling. Mm. And there was no, we di- didn't hear anything from the embassy. Uh, so we all sort of gathered together and um, the Beatles revolution seemed to be an appropriate thing to play on the little cassette tape player that I oh, yeah. brought with me. Um, but it also was a turning point in my life because I realized at that time that this was a life-threatening situation. And that being overwhelmed by the small things Mm. just wasn't valid. And that's where I coined my first uh, mantra, as it were, which is, you can use the word overwhelm if life or limb are at risk. But if not, you can only be whelmed. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. especially when you've been in a life threatening situation mm-hmm. like that where where you really are fearful for I mean because you said you hadn't heard from the embassy well, you, you weren't certain yeah. about exactly how I didn't you were know going if, to get out yeah I didn't know if my parents knew yeah you know oh, yeah. because keep in mind you know I was using aerograms little blue flimsy paper mm. oh, yeah. uh, letter things I mean it wasn't like I could phone home puts things in perspective and yeah. I know that kind of living you know I go up to, to a place in Brevard North Carolina that doesn't have any electricity doesn't have any running water and it's an intentional way of setting the place up to kind of put you back in touch with those things you take for granted mm-hmm. and I'm sure in Afghanistan's a similar thing you know I when, mean when running you to, water to be right. able to turn on a tap hot water hot water yeah luxurious yeah. luxurious yeah. I know I know I felt that way walking down the hallways in my home before flipping light switches as I walk down the hallway and I've had moments of these aha moments of wow this is absolutely phenomenal it's like magic and yet we all take it so for granted that we can just flip the light on as we want as we walk down the hallway exactly so fortunately you do get out of Afghanistan we're gonna we're gonna lead out with the Fab Four and revolution and then we're gonna get into your next adventure when you get back Evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out, don't you know it's gonna be alright, alright. You say you got a real solution Well, you know We'd all love to see the plan You ask me for a contribution Well, you know We all do what we can 
But if you want money for people with minds that hate All I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait revolution and Janet was able to survive and get back to the states thank goodness and uh, and and somehow you get you put yourself in touch with Nancy Stevenson my mother and Nancy Stevenson wrote several murder mysteries together oh, and really? so I grew up with Nancy and okay. and uh, her children and spent a lot of time out at Charlestown Landing which at the time was Old Town Plantation her mother Ferdy Legree Waring uh, had it as a working farm, but they had a swimming pool, so we'd be out there. So I come back from Afghanistan, and of course, the first thing I do is go to a grocery store, and I'm appalled at the waste and the choices and everything else. And I, I was very holier than thou for a couple of weeks, and then I got through it. But Nancy called me, and she said, I need you to come to Columbia and be my press secretary, because I'd had a, a previous life as a news reporter. Right. And, you know, I went to my mentor, dad, and I said, you know, I just don't know. I don't know if I really want to do this. And he said, well, think of it as an adventure. Uh-huh. You know, it's it, Columbia, for all of its lack of historical stuff, is the center of the state. And it might be interesting to see how the legislature works. Well, that wasn't the understatement of all time, <laughs> because Nancy, as lieutenant governor, presided over the state senate. So we spent a lot of time. In the, our office was right there in the state house, and it was so interesting to me because being the first woman ever elected statewide, nobody knew quite what to expect mm. or how to handle it. And this was at a time when there was a Democratic governor and a, a primarily Democratic legislature, but there was still that that bias out there. Okay, you know what's this? uppity woman doing in our midst kind of thing. So it was... It so was it was a, an adventure. It was a great adventure. And so contrary to our last guest on the show, Hamilton Davis, yeah. spends a lot of time in, 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 in uh, Columbia, and we asked him about his adventures there, and he said, well, it, it's, probably, it's not that adventurous. So you get involved with Nancy Stevenson mm-hmm. in, in Columbia, yeah. and, and you didn't know what you were getting into, but you went for it. And it I sounds like there's, yeah. there's, you know, uh, 
that sort of uh, ambitious curiosity that, mm-hmm. that comes to play in situations like that? And, and how did that play out for you? Well, you know, I enjoyed it. I made some great friends. Yeah. You know, the, the, the young Turks at the time were people like Bob Shaheen and Jean Toll, who's now Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. Inez Tannenbaum I met during that time. Um, Ginger Crocker, who was the youngest person ever elected to the legislature. A wonderful woman from Clinton, South Carolina. So I really got to see how the legislature operated. Um, how they draw the lines for the districts mm. and how political that is, regardless Changes. of who's in charge. Yeah. And Nancy decided not to run for a second term, so I stayed on and I worked for the Budget and Control Board, which is the big, the behemoth that is actually really unconstitutional because it combines the legislative branch with the executive. But anyway, I learned even more about how government runs. And then I had a birthday looming. And I ran into Petsy Hollings, and she said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm working for the Budget Control Board, but I'm getting a little antsy, you know. She said, well, you know, Lorette Rupi is the director of the Peace Corps, and she's a good friend of mine. Why don't you think about going Uh back to Peace Corps? And I said, I would love to do that, but I think I have the qualifications to be a country director. Because I'd learned about budgeting, I'd Mm -hmm. learned about finance, I had... Uh, run a, a, a personnel department training office for two years. You know, I felt that I had the skill set. And so I ended up going to Washington. I interviewed and um, I was offered the position of country director in Swaziland, which is in southern Africa. And I'd never been to Africa. Talk and about an adventure. Yeah. Well, I just signed up for it. You went for it. I went yeah. for it. And um, it was an amazing an amazing experience. You, you spent five years there. Uh, three. Three years. Just under okay. three, yeah. Okay. And then I came back to D.C. Um, and was on senior staff for six years. I see. With the Peace Corps still. Yeah. And yeah. I did projects in over 40 countries. So I really did see the common denominators. Mm-hmm. And I've been very aware of the new ones, you know. And again, how technology has affected the third world. You know, you can go to pr- pretty much anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa and their cell phones. Right. You know, mm, right. people might not know where their next meal is coming from, but they have a cell phone. And think about the positive impact that could have, you right. know, to provide health care, to provide mm-hmm. education. So it's interesting when you think about these sort of th- these changes in your life along the way. It, they're definitely what we would refer to, on, you know, as the topic of this show, the call to adventure. It seems like you, you make them fairly effortlessly. You realize when a position is no longer something that's serving you. And, and when you run into your friend who says, how about the Peace Corps? And you say, oh, sure. Okay, let's do that. So is, is that is that the way this ha- it happens? That sort of smoothly? It's, it's, or it's is not there... been as glib as it sounds. Okay. Um, because, and keep in mind, I was, you know, I was, I was single. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to worry about a family. I didn't have to worry about, you know, I didn't own property at the time. And so I was able to do it. And I felt very strongly about the fact that when these opportunities come up, it's because I think there's some kind of karma being exuded mm. that people offer opportunities to other people for this. And you're listening. And I'm I listening. think that's the I'm most listening. important thing. Yeah, and, and the opportunity to live in another culture and to live in two completely different cultures. I want to talk just a moment about Swaziland. I get there, and two weeks into it, I'm invited to the big harvest celebration. It's September of 1987. And hundreds of bare-breasted virgins dance before the king. 
And mm. I thought, what an enlightened society, you know, after being in a country years before where all the women had to be oh, covered yeah. head to toe. But soon to find out, they couldn't vote. They didn't have access to good health care. They couldn't own property. I had a wonderful housekeeper who she kept all her money as cash because if she had a bank account, any male relative could go in and take money out of it. Mm. So even though it looked enlightened and was 180 degrees away from Afghanistan in that respect, those barriers were still there. Right. So fast forwarding to when? I think early 2000, 2001? Yep. I took, took over. over. Took over reins for the Center for Women. Yeah. How long had it been uh, running when you the took over? The center was started in 1990 okay. by a wonderful uh, group of women who were really looking to offer resources for folks going through difficult transitions. Mm-hmm. And over the years, it had, it had gone here and then it had gone there, depending on sort of the board of directors and what kind of staff they had. And at the time that I, I went, I took over, um, there had been no full-time staff for like a year there were offering, mm. you know, volunteers were, were basically keeping it going. And I saw a real opportunity yeah. to offer the women of the Tri-County area an opportunity for professional and personal development, mm-hmm. to be able to get ahead, to be able to become economically independent. And so I started. And I'm proud to say that the Center for Women was the first nonprofit in town to have a, an email newsletter. Mm-hmm. But there was no money. There was no money. We had a mortgage. We had a house over on Savannah Highway. I hired the young woman who'd been the intern the semester before, the day after she graduated from college. And we just, I just said, we have got to maximize everything that's offered to us. So the technology was there. And we started an email newsletter, and I got on the speaking circuit. Now, this was Mm. in March of 2001. Now, you talk about karma. 9-11 happens. And about a week after that, I got a call from somebody who was with the Jewish Welfare Fund or one of the organizations associated with the JCC, and they said, because remember, we bombed Afghanistan. Weren't you in Afghanistan? And I said, yes, I was many years ago. Well, we're going to do a panel discussion. Would you come and talk about it? So I did, and I had my Shador that Uh I took with me. And basically, that opened up the opportunity for me to speak in a number of different environments, whether it was Rotary, whether it was a book club, garden club, to talk about Afghanistan. And then I would take it from that global Mm. perspective and bring it back locally. In the context of? In the context of the Center for Women and what we were offering. Yeah. So it was a wonderful opportunity for me to really get out and create a diverse group of of supporters. And everywhere I went, I got Mm. those email addresses. It's interesting the way that, that, you know, so often out of tragedy yeah. comes growth and, and potentially opportunity, particularly if you're, if you're open to that potential. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing is, is just being open and receptive to it. It sounds like, you know, when you first got involved with, at the Center for Women that um, it was this perfect convergence of, sort of experiences in your life mm-hmm. leading you to this, mm-hmm. okay, this feels like a good thing to do. Well, there was also another aspect to it, which was the demographic of all these women who've moved here, who have lived places where there have been professional development opportunities, where if you're looking at starting a business, there's support for you there. Um, And I found that the majority of our supporters were people from away. 
it took mm. longer to sort of bring the locals mm -hmm. with it. And I think that it was more palatable for many because I was from here. You know, I knew how to speak the language, right. as it were. And, you know, I'd stayed in touch with all my friends. I had a great support network when I moved back here. I wasn't coming in cold. Yeah. But it's interesting because I was, I was reading an article uh, about the Center for Women, and you were quoted as saying something about um, trying to convince women that it's a good idea to go ahead and jump off the cliff because the net will appear. Leap and the net will appear. Right. And I love that. It's a quote very similar to one that I mm -hmm. personally love, which is leap off the cliff and, and your wings will grow on your way down. And it's such a great visual metaphor for, for just, you know, going for it. But it also requires a lot of confidence. Yeah. And I think that much of the time women aren't as confident as maybe we hope to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the series that the Post and Courier did on domestic violence, they had a little insert there talking about the, the uh, uh, atmosphere for women in the state of South Carolina and the fact that three things really govern the attitude, which is, you know, religion, guns, and women as chattel. You have daughters, Alex. I do. I and, have a young daughter. And, um, you know, when she graduates from college yeah. and she's got a classmate and they both major in the same thing and they both go out there and they both get jobs, say, with banks. And within two years, her male classmate is making 20% more than she is. And within 10 years, half, I mean, she's making half. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's one of those things, and it's, a, it's very basic for me that I think every, everyone needs to learn how to negotiate because you need to negotiate on that first job because that's what's gonna build your salary base. Mm -hmm. And that also, uh, creates your social security totals, you know, mm -hmm. at the end. And the Lily Ledbetter bit, remember the Lily Ledbetter Act? She was hired to run a, 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 tire, a Goodyear tire factory at the same time two men were hired for two other of the factories. And when she went to retire, she found out that they had started her at a lower salary. So it affected her social security. But since she didn't find out about it till 15 years later, she couldn't bring suit because the law said, if you're being discriminated against, you have to report it within six months. And because of her, even though she couldn't benefit from it, Congress made that change. It changed it. It's interesting because my daughter is six and a half. Her name's Maya. And, uh, you know, there's there's been a few occasions where I scratch my head because, uh, uh, you know, not knowing what direction she's going. But I often say to myself, you know, she's got a really big, strong voice, and that's comforting. You know, she's a strong, independent young woman. She might leave the house and not come back like you did. Right. <laughs> but uh, you need but to support, support tell her that every day. Yeah. Because, you know, it's our fathers who... Yeah first give us our sense of self and mothers but particularly fathers well speaking of uh of uh, male role models i know that one of the people that we, when asked about who you're most inspired by is uh, your husband my jack husband alterman, jack, jack alterman uh, who i know well and has been such a great influence on on the, the creative arts and photography here in charleston and and you guys uh met not too long before you got involved with the center for women it was in the 90s we met <laughs> I agreed rather reluctantly to go on a blind date in oh, yeah. August of 96 with Jack, and we were married four months the day after that. Really? So 
So something we're worked. coming up on 19 years. Okay. I just knew. Yeah. I just I just knew, and I was so <laughs> glad I'd listened to my mother, who said, "Never settle. Don't settle. You can't have a relationship with potential. It has to already be there." But growing up with two artists, you know, I mm. appreciate his his artistic bent, and I have watched him reinvent himself several times because yeah. you know the time I met him. It was primarily commercial work that he was doing, but he saw digital coming before anybody did. And then, of course, he created the the Charleston Center for Photography. So all of a sudden, people could learn how to use Photoshop and how to use the digital cameras. And then he decided to make make the the, the change into more artistic photography, and he has a great book that he's... Just, just came out, right? It's unbelievable. It's yeah. called My City Charleston. And I think it captures Charleston. It's a photographic, you know, uh, essay really about Charleston. And it captures it at a time when it is about to change. And Mayor mm, Riley wrote yeah. the, the foreword and Josephine Humphreys wrote the introduction to it. And, and Jack, of course, did all the photographs. And here are three people who grew up in the city at the same time. And their takes on it. And I think what I appreciate most about Jack, other than the fact that he is divine and wonderful and handsome and funny and generous and all those good things, is that he knows himself. And he has been able to keep up, if not stay ahead of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for someone of a certain age, usually they slow down yeah. a little bit and maybe cut back. And he's revving up. Right. Right. I yeah. think I think Luce said uh, to her biography uh, from the book you're reading. I hope I shall have ambition until the day I die. Uh, to that point of just the continual evolution and curiosity and continuing to move um, rather than getting into one spot. Well, do what yeah. makes you happy. Yeah, and be done with all the rest. Yeah, and that's the quote. Yeah, that's, that's your my new. Quote. That's your that's new That's my motto. new one. That's my new yeah. one. Yeah. What was the one just before that? Remind me again. When in doubt, do nothing. When in doubt, do nothing. Because you now, don't want to have a knee-jerk reaction. You know, oh, you yeah. want to be able to. Okay. If to, it's to not immediately it. obvious uh-huh. when you're in a situation where you have to choose, it's better to do nothing than. Mm. You know, well, who was it that said, "When you reach the fork in the road, take it." That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I love well, that. Well, I think uh, uh, speaking of uh, of wonderful duets, as you and Jack are. Uh, we have a great song to lead us out of the studio here today with uh, Emmylou Harris and Rodney Crowell singing Way to the World, which is a wonderful song and inspired by what I think you appear to be inspired by, which is a tremendous uh, feeling for activism mm-hmm. and, and to do good while you're here for the people that uh, really feel need, need help. And uh, so it's really fantastic to, to have you here in the studio. And, Thank you. And I've, I've appreciated it. having the opportunity to talk to both of you about it. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, Cheers. Let's hear Way to the World. Smoking down a track I'm a fireball mill Blowing coal so black Can't even see the rail Forty tons of steel behind a driving wheel pulls away to the world. Coming up the road, another rubber tie fold. It got us hooked on oil to the pipeline below. It's such a shame to see at World War Three to the way to the the way of the world 
shape of a man With that nation Poisonous up a river With the devil's own sludge Is the American dream But if you live downstream Here comes the way to the world Turn the plastic bottles Headed out to sea Bound to build an island Thanks to you and me Another man-made pearl Full of junk we held Top the weight of the world Yeah, the weight of the world conversation yeah absolutely i i I was struck by and and you know i've said this on on, in our conversation i i've raised by a very strong mother brenda um four beautiful wonderful sisters uh and uh i i just was struck by how as a species as, as as humanity as a culture we we so underutilize and underappreciate half of our entire population you know yeah i agree i agree and it 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 is and has been um at least in our lifetimes a very patriarchal society and and interesting to bring that up on the heels of our next conversation with reverend jeremy rutledge who um has studied eco-feminism which talks to that point about sort of underutilizing the female uh intuition and values and how it connects to nature and that women in nature are united through their shared history of oppression by a more patriarchal Western society. And it's an interesting topic to get into. Yeah, I've never heard that term, ecofeminism. Yeah, I didn't know exactly what it was about, but I'm sure we'll get more into it with, with Jeremy on the, on the next program. That's another thing that struck me as, you know, we've talked to uh, 
Buff Ross and Marcus Amaker and Hamilton Davis and and everybody has different obstacles that they have to overcome as they you know venture out on a new path mm-hmm. um, and and I don't find that fear and, and and Janet ventured off on a lot of new paths I mean starting at the age of six when she stole a quarter from her mother and, and took the bus down to uh, and got a candy bar um, or when she left the camp at eleven. Uh, fear doesn't seem to play a part in her thought process. She, it doesn't. She, she seemed to. She talked about karma. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about travel, uh, intuition, and, and intuition. You know, yeah. and I think I, I don't know if that's related to her being a female um, that she's more in touch with her intuition. But I did find it uh, interesting that that she really uh, has a. Uh, a wonderful way of listening to her inner voice and trusting that. Yeah, and it didn't feel like there was some sort of fear that needed to be overcome. It felt like she was naturally inclined mm. to not be fearful in that way and to just be courageous and step right in and go for it when she felt that particular call, which, you know, as somebody who um, is providing uh, a mirror for so many women, particularly in this state to look towards for how they can uh, achieve uh, the things that uh, they would like to achieve and be more courageous and listen to their intuition. Well, she's a great model to be, to be yeah, looking wonderful. at. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to have her mother and father for a conversation? Because oh, yeah. you, you have to think that the environment that she grew up with, uh, she talked about artists being around all the time and the plays that they would go to. Um, uh, a lot of characters around, and you got to think that that was such a nurturing environment uh, that certainly shaped her uh, understanding of fear and relation to fear, and perhaps the reason why, uh, or one of the reasons why, uh, it, it's not a big influencer on how she. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure it it was a big factor in modeling her most recent motto, which I love, which is uh, "Do what you love and forget the rest." Yeah. So, Well, thank you, Janet, for being with us. Thank you uh, to those listening out there for spending another hour with us. Uh, thanks to Ohm Radio for making it all happen. Uh, John Duckworth and Alexopoulos signing off. We're happy to be here doing what we love. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.